Hi and hello, watch fans, and welcome to another edition of The Real Time Show with me, your friendly neighborhood watchmaker, Rob Nuts. Today, I am joined by my mentor, the man that guided me through the early days of my watch journalism career, Ariel Adams, best known for his work with the industry-leading blogtowatch.com. How are you, Ariel? I'm good. Thank you, Rob. That was a very warm introduction. Well, it's totally genuine. You know, I mean, I always say I think the importance of paying homage to the people that gave you the start that you need in the industry is the most important thing because aside from the watchers, the people that make up our journey through the watchmaking industry are the most valuable thing to us. And here we are today talking about watches in front of an audience, or it will be. <laughs> there will be an audience. Yeah, there better be. Yeah, the audience is growing. Don't worry about it. You're going to be speaking to a lot of very knowledgeable people. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. People that listen to watch podcasts are my favorite members of the audience. That's why I've been doing literally two shows a week that we publish. Sometimes we record more than two, especially when I'm a guest on shows like this. So I'm I'm all about it. I think it's great. The community seems to enjoy it. And again, you know, there's different types of people that like watches. The types that will listen to a talk show about it. These are the these are like our type of people, right? Oh yeah, definitely. I actually ran into quite a few of them uh, at events, physical events of all things, in Stockholm and Helsinki in the last 10 days. I was in both and people would come up to me and they go, oh, are you involved in the real-time show? And I'm like, yeah, well, yeah, it's my, my podcast. I'm like, oh, we listened to it. And I couldn't believe it, of course. I mean, I believe it. I see the stats. We have listeners, but it's amazing. Is there no confusion with the American real-time show with Bill Maher? No, absolutely none. I, I mean, I guess people, if they Googled us without putting watches or watchmaking into that, they might end up with Bill Maher's show instead. But no, it's uh, it's never been an issue. And uh, I think because we're in such different fields, it's it's probably fine. But anyway, you mentioned you have two podcasts. Give us a little plug. Tell us what they are. So uh, the show that I do right now that I'm the host, like where I sit in, in your seat is superlative and it's an interview show where, again, we talk to, uh, well, I talk to personalities and I just try to choose an interesting cross-section, CEOs, people that design watches, collectors once in a while, people that start up little, little brands, um, people such as yourself. And I'm trying to document this sort of era. I think that like 50 years from now, they'll look at all the watches that were made over this like you know, 30, 40 year era. And they'll be like, what were all those people thinking? So I hope that work <laughs> like mine and yours helps reveal that this is what these people were thinking because the story behind the watch is crucial. And I firmly believe that years from now, especially when these things are going to be traded to some future generation of collectors, they're going to have no clue what's going on. And then the other shoe is a blog to watch weekly, which is a discussion about the latest watch releases that week. And some of the articles we published sort of a extended discussion beyond the article um, and that's proven to be pretty good. So um, uh, Richard Atkinson from Scotland, he's the host. I let him do that duty. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm one of the co-hosts there. Um, and we just talk about the news. So two totally different things. Um, and yeah, thanks for asking. Well, I guess that the superlative is more of a corollary to the real-time show in that it pulls back the curtain and it tries to get to the bottom of things. And it's great that you have the more current affairs covered as well by Rick. I like your sort of investigative uh, angle there. I think, you know, for me, it's more fireside chat. I like seeing what people are willing to say. You've got this. You're trying to uncover things. It's a, I like the mission. <laughs> well, I learned from the best. What can I say? And talking of that, so I contacted you for the first time about 10 years ago in search of a writing job, and you eventually gave me one after telling me to bugger off initially and go get some more experience, and I did. I did exactly <laughs> as I was told. 
came back cap in hand and in 2015 i started writing with you a blog to watch but your career in journalism goes all the way back to at least 2007 when you founded what was then known as a blog to read for our listeners that don't know what had you been doing before then and where did the love of watches come from well i started the website like the month after i finished taking the bar exam so not uh not to you know prior to that i just finished you know school i was 25 and the site was a hobby for just two years until I started doing a full time. I worked as an attorney, so I would I would say in a lot of ways this isn't my first job, but it's my first business I started, and um you know it's going on sixteen years now. So I'm just trying you know not to let not to let the thing break. You know it's like a nice old house now. You want to preserve it, keep it nice, build on when necessary, but it's got character now. It certainly has. It's got a character that's known throughout the industry and you've managed i think maybe better than a lot of your media peers to stay true to what you initially set out to do and that seems to be to cover like watchmaking from all angles a broad spectrum and it's rare now that brands or media brands like yours are so able to remain so i don't know what's the word from a thousand foot perspective you know you take a really wide view you don't focus in on just the traffic driving brands because we can all see what's happening in certain corners of the media landscape people are focused on just the rolexes just the omegas just the stuff that's going to drive clicks from external readers or maybe come to your site once and then never stick around in the future how hard is it for you to accrue a team that is interested in doing that and able to keep up with it that's a, a lot of interesting points to bring up. And the first thing I would bring up has to do with some, some of the basis of the internet information economy. When it comes to putting information on the internet, it really falls in one of two camps in terms of what the person producing it is thinking. And that is, this is something that people need to know about because they don't know about it. And I'm trying to inform them or educate them, expand them, trying to serve some purpose for uh, uh, offering something they didn't know that they need. And the other side of that is, it's not my job to tell people anything new. I want to give people what I know that they're looking for. I know people behave this way, and I want to give them something that relates to what they're already doing. I'm not expanding their life at all. I'm sticking in exactly with what their current preferences are, and I'm trying to deliver to them what uh, what I think they're looking for right now. And that transcends into content creation. Whereas, do you want to introduce someone to something new? Or do you want to be like, I know you love Rolex. So let's talk about that latest Rolex and why it's such a great idea to buy the brand you already want. And there is a market for that. People like that sort of self-validating type of content. I'm not particularly interested in making it. So for me, it goes back to what is it that I want to do? And that is talk about cool watches with people, help introduce new things, new brands, new models to people explain how watches are made, how they work, why I like them, you know, everyone can come to their own conclusion. It's really about sharing and enthusiast hobby media in the way that I consumed it in the 1990s, which was car magazines, uh, computer magazines, camera magazines, video game magazines, film magazines, and the shows and things around it was its own sort of enthusiast collector culture that all translated directly and be able to cover um, a completely different category, which was wristwatches, but understanding how to have a, a, a media-driven conversation around it that was, you know, ethical and responsible. 
So how did you first encounter wristwatches? Through those magazines, through the car magazines of the 90s or some, somewhere else? No, no, there was never any watch exposure through any of that media of any kind. I think like many people, and again, you probably more than most have encountered more consumers who stumbled upon the hobby. You've heard stories from people about, you know, that that, you know, that first time where I got hooked and, and that's all, you know, it's all over after that. You just keep buying watches. Uh, but it's you're at an event, you're at a store, you're in a country, you're traveling. You see the one watch. There's the fact like, oh, it's worth twenty thousand dollars. That's the retail price. Why? You know, that curiosity. Um, I recently found a picture of myself aged three and I was wearing a watch. So I was wearing a watch for a long time. But that didn't turn into being a watch collector until uh, about the time I was 20 or 21 years old. Okay, so you've been a watch lover. Watch wearer. Watch wearer, really. Watch wearer. Okay, watch wearer, watch lover, watch collector. And then you became a watch expert. But where did you get that knowledge from? When you started a blog to read in 2007, were you already so far down the rabbit hole that you were in possession of knowledge way in excess of that of your peers? Or did that come along a little bit after that? I think the thing I want to talk about in response to that question is the ability to sort of differentiate between different types of information. So you, there's a lot of information that was available at the time online about watches. Much of it was low quality. And coming from legal background and studying some research methods and things like that in undergrad, I had some, uh, you know, some skill in, in looking at information and trying to determine if it was credible or not. Did it make sense? And so I was able to learn about the hobby through the immense amount of information that was online, but also able to weigh, is this valuable information? Is this valuable information? Or is this not valuable information? What we didn't have back then, which ha which exists today, which I honestly think makes watch quality more dangerous, is opinions everywhere. It was a lot of boring, obtuse information back then. Much of it was hard to sift through and you needed to sort of I don't even know what, think like some type of weird researcher to just put all these random articles together in your mind and understand what it is and read interviews and meet with people. I mean, for me, a lot of it is is self-taught, but it is self-taught the way that you're supposed to by spending years and years and years reading, interviewing, traveling around the world, observing this industry from as many different angles as possible, manufacturing, design, retail, service. Um, you know, looking at it from an antique perspective, modern perspective, you know, corporate owned, ind individual owned. I've sort of seen as many angles to this industry as there are to see today. And just sort of given the fact that I like to construct in my mind models of how things work, I have no choice but to sort of put the pieces together so that I can explain to you, and to audiences and whoever, whoever I'm speaking to, not only how these things work and how they're designed, but how this industry works, what the motivations are behind people. It's, it's, it's one big you know, compulsion of answering the question why. And I think that we find that a lot of people that love watches, whether they make them or buy them or sell them, have these interesting compulsions. And they sort of take great comfort in, in, in wristwatches in terms of a place to focus those compulsions. It's very interesting that you speak about not being a traditionally trained journalist. As you say, you were a lawyer by training. And obviously, I followed in your footsteps as a non-traditionally trained journalist. I learned from you and did a lot of that learning as you did myself on the road and meeting people and talking to people and accruing it by doing it in real life. Now, I think that is the right way to learn. I think that that is the most valid way to learn and much more valuable than having a degree in the subject of journalism, having never stepped out of the classroom. But did you ever 
in the early days, especially before you'd established yourself as a media titan, run into any kind of pushback because you weren't from a traditional journalary background? Well, I think that's an excellent question. And what I would say to that is, no, I have traditionalist journalism classes I've took. It's not the case that I have zero education. I, I, didn't, I don't have a full degree in it, but I, in college, I took probably three or four classes that were part of the journalism major. And you know um, it, it was something that I knew a lot about media law. So I had a framework in some of the basics like ethics, right? Um, or some of the legalities and things like that, or just generally the business model uh, of media. So I, I, I wouldn't say that I came wholly unprepared, uh, but when people basically for the first couple of years started calling me a journalist, I was like, I'm not. I didn't even know exactly what to call myself, mostly because I was defending these people that had gone to journalism school, right? There was these individuals that were like, you know, trained journalists, and I wasn't right. trying to eat their lunch. I was doing kind of my own thing. Uh, a lot of them ended up going away, which was sad, um, and it just became us editorialists. So I feel like I know enough about traditional journalism to quote unquote be dangerous. I've picked up a lot of things working with some traditional publications about sort of how magazines are run, how editorial rooms go. But again, a lot of it has to do with curiosity. Um, curiosity can overcome a lack of a lot of formal education. Um, but you, you have to understand that you go into these things knowing very, very little. And if you're not curious, you end up mess, mess up a lot. And that's what we've seen in the media space and watches. Uh, uh, there are very few business models that really seem to work. That's interesting. So now you've been where you are in the industry for so long. What's it done to your perception of it? And this is a big question. I'll try and keep the question short so the answer can be long. Are you still full of wide-eyed wonder for it? Or have you become more hardened and cynical as the years have rolled by? I, I definitely have my areas of cynicism. I become, you know, I'm human. I've become jaded in a lot of areas, but that hasn't stopped my enthusiasm because the industry is quite remarkably resilient and adaptable. One of the things that is interesting is that just a couple of strong heartbeats can make the entire industry seem alive. And what I mean by that is, let's say there's like 100 watch brands. There's more, but let's say there's 100 watch brands. Maybe 10% of them have to be doing well commercially for the rest of them to be excited about attempting to do well commercially. There's always a large number of brands, in other words, that just don't make a lot of money or any money. And they're funded by you know wealthy uh, interests that can afford to lose the money most of the time. But this is an aspirational industry that keeps reinventing itself and attracting new and sometimes weirder personalities. So it's difficult to get bored because it's a moving target. The way to make money uh, has changed multiple times over there. I mean, I used to be paid a lot early on as a writer. I was getting a lot of paid gigs. Most of those publications are gone. There are, you know, right now, if you want to be a, a, a watch journalist, you got to be a, a one human show. You got to talk it. You got to write. You got to produce content. You got to have a channel, maybe a website like it's a one man band. And it's it is a very uh, difficult thing. It's been changing um, what watches look like, where they're sold, who designs them, where they're made. All of this is a rapidly evolving uh, uh, sort of organism and sort of a very strange way, to be honest, for, for me to see. And so I think that as jaded as as I am 
like anyone am prone to be, um, the changing nature of the industry and its resilience and how popular it is despite logic, I think continues to fascinate people that see themselves as rationalists and love the sort of like ever-expanding irrationality of the sector. Did you ever feel in the early days and maybe even now on occasion out of your depth or were you always confident that what you knew and your openly curious pursuit of knowledge was enough to keep you going forward? I don't really know. I mean, I I think I, I like everyone, I'm not entirely aware of my own limitations all the time. Um, I definitely realized that I could understand this topic. It seemed to it seemed to mystify a lot of people. So I think if you understand how watches work, you understand how they're designed, you understand most of the basics. You're you're definitely a few steps ahead. So mechanically speaking, I was never like confused. I and mean, there's some people it's like I'll never understand how a watch movement works or something like that. Mm, and right. I, I don't claim to be a watchmaker, and I'm not sitting there making drawings. But like I can look at it. You know, like someone could look at a car engine and be like, "That's that part. That's that part." Like. I more or less knows that something's new. Like, wait a minute, that doesn't look like all the other engines, right? Like, I can, I, I, I know this part, and that's put me ahead of some curves. And I, I am curious about the business side and the psychology behind why people make these things. Um, you know, not a lot of people write or talk about that. There's not a lot of data out there. Most of the business journalism is is really based upon data. They, they, they take data which is made available from an industry, and then they analyze it and comment on it and make predictions based upon it. And that's what they do. They don't do a lot of investigation. There is, re I mean, there is data in the watch industry, but it's not, I wouldn't call it reliable data or <laughs> complete data. And and to sort of get an idea of what's going on, you have to be a little bit of an investigator. You have to talk to people. You have to listen carefully and, and, and think about what people are doing and read between the lines a lot. Um, so I I think that I always recognized that I was up for the challenge, but I never felt like I understood it because what happened then and continues now is a large, um, a large curtain behind between what the world sees and what really happens, whether it's how watches are made or how they're designed or how the companies are governed. Um, you know, I think a good example is the fact that there's several publicly traded companies, especially the European ones, Swatch Group, LVMH. Richemont, they're they're like publicly traded, and the, and the assumption of publicly traded companies, at least in the United States, is a certain degree of transparency and how they're run and who they're run by and why they're making decisions and a certain level of obligations to shareholders and things like that. And that only exists in and uh, maybe form or or uh, pretense in any of these uh, these companies. These companies are essentially run like privately run companies, but with public money. Um, in a way that is odd, I think, if you're looking at it from sort of a strictly, you know, traditional perspective. So there tends to be uh, no information really given about them. So if anyone is trying to like understand how they how they do and how they run their business, you couldn't look at these publicly traded companies that are supposed to give reports and explanations how they do business to learn anything about how they how they they want to do business. And so these are one of the areas where you have to. Um, just sort of investigate because it's it's just sort of obtuse. Um, so I think that if you if you like real mysteries and like sort of solving puzzles, uh, it's I don't know maybe a masochistic thing at times, but this industry is definitely for someone that that likes having lots of questions to constantly answer and have not and, and that conspiracy. I mean, you know, there's like not that I subscribe to them, but there's conspiracy theories in this industry merely as a function of having a lack of authentic information to go on. 
Mm, very true, very true. And it's quite clear that you're a man very concerned with the complex issues that the industry allows us to <laughs> explore. I mean, one of the key words you said in, in that answer, which was brilliant, by the way, thank you, was psychology. And you've always been very clearly interested in the psychology of the industry and the psychologies of the people behind the decisions made in the industry. And over the years, we've had many conversations about this. And this is what I think of when I think of you. I don't actually think of watches as in a physical product. I think about all of the human aspects that go into their creation and why people do what they do and why brands do what they do. And I think that it's quite clear in your writing, especially your modern writing, that that is the aspect of the industry that seems to interest you most. And I think, I think, and maybe tell me if I'm right or not, that that's increased over the years. The deeper you've fallen down this rabbit hole, the more obsessed with understanding or at least laying bare the rationale behind decisions made uh, is, uh, has overtaken you. I have to clear up misconceptions. I mean, a lot of what I do right now is, you know, and you've been there with me saying, hey, Ariel, people out there have this belief. It's not it's not true. You know, you need to help clear it up because people have this weird idea about things. And I'm like, so now I have to write an article sometimes for the second or even third time telling people that you can't learn how to collect watches by buying the 10 watches to collect list. Right. So a lot of it has to do with going out there and uh, correcting, if if I will, um, uh, misconceptions about how to get into watch collecting or or people have these weird ideas about, you know, where you know, just certain things about the industry. So I have to clear up a lot of misconceptions or explain, you know, what Rolex is thinking. That's what I had to do, you know, during uh, the pandemic, especially with Rolex prices being what they were. People are like, yeah, Rolex is doing this or they're intentionally doing that. And I had to sit there and basically defend Rolex and be like, no, they're not doing this. Yeah, they may be able to do something, but they're not really planning any of this. So I feel that's a that's a lot of what I've had to do. And, and trust me, the industry does not particularly thank me. Once in a while, I'll get a comment about, you know, someone liking something. I wrote an article when I'm, you know, with, you know, industry, <laughs> industry officials in Switzerland. But when it comes down to it, like this is just something I feel that I need to do because there is a lot of misinformation. Uh, but you're right. Uh, the reason why watches are made, I think, is frequently the most interesting because um, that story is often lost. The the products themselves very, very rarely explain why they were made. And you and I know that when somebody spends a lot of money on a watch, it's the context around it which usually gets them comfortable with the value proposition. Just the thing itself isn't enough. They need to have additional information. It's going to mean more to them. And so bringing those stories front and center um, is important. And as we know, the industry is usually terrible at doing it themselves. So I guess you feel that your role in in explaining the reality of situations that are often misconstrued and subject to conspiracy theories is one of journalistic integrity and a responsibility that you take very seriously. Do you feel that that responsibility is widely enough reflected by the remaining media landscape? There's no incentive for it. No one's paid to do it. People are people are paid to take care of themselves and, and their clients, and that's what they do. I mean, um, I'm not trying to pass value judgments on there. I don't like this sort of like, you know, shaming people like everyone needs to be better. Well, if it doesn't pay to be better and there's no rules against being bad, well, people are going to do what's the most efficient. I mean, the Internet is a, a place where people are trying to get attention so that they can earn a living. 
And if you, you know, you tr people try to do it the ethical way, which is hard, but it's really, really hard. And they fail and they've invested a lot of time and effort. And it's like, God, I can't just, can't just stop now. Got to keep going. And then they adopt less and less ethical business models. And then they, maybe they don't get punished and they last for a while. And uh, it takes years sometimes for people to, you know, to have, have these bad decisions come in and, and, and bite them. Uh, but we, again, we, we exist in an environment where there's no punishment for lying. And when you make a decision that uh, erodes the audience's, um, you know, I don't know, believability or enthusiasm for your content, it takes a few years before it really shuts everything down. This is an industry where uh, success is slow and failure is also slow, right? Brand, brands, mm. if they die overnight, it's because someone pulled the money. But usually the brands just like slowly just kind of sputter out, right? Yeah, I mean, that's a superb thing to say, success is slow and failure is slow, because that is something that does seem to fly in the face of like general mantras. People would expect you to say, oh, it takes a long time to build success and you can lose it overnight. But like you say, unless the foundations are literally ripped from underneath a company's feet, that isn't what happened. Like a, a brand or a media brand can, can linger based on its previous reputation for quite some time. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I guess that we should talk about in regards to like the, the ethical way of doing watch journalism and otherwise perhaps is the fact that you, you have a shop, you sell some little items like t-shirts and whatnot, which are really cool. Some of them glow in the dark. If you've not seen that, go check those out on a blog to watch.com. That's a B L O G T O W A T C H.com. And you can follow the link to the shop. But you don't pursue that many collaborations. Now, you as an individual, as a designer, you've done a couple of really cool pieces in the past. I think one of the ones that many of our, many of our listeners, I know them to be a fan of, is the Zodiac that you did, uh, the sort of teal colored one, which was amazing. Yeah, that one did well. But why haven't you pursued watch collaborations in the same way that some of your media peers have? I've had brands talking to me about watch collaborations for more than a decade now. And for a long time, I just said no to everything for a lot of really good reasons. Then I decided that what was interesting to me was doing creative things. I finally, after a long, long time of looking at watches, felt like, you know what? I could make some creative decisions that could probably yield a marketable product. And the watches that I designed that came out, um, I look at them, I was like, yeah, these are all cool. Like, these are all good things. Some of them require more storytelling than others, but they were very cool. And everyone that has them really likes them. The Zodiac one was probably with the biggest brand, and that one was very commercially successful. And uh, I, I'm, I'm really super happy about it. But most of these uh, collaborations, if you will, don't provide a huge amount of, of creative opportunity. People just want to do different colors. I have like a blanket you know, no to anything where they just want to change colors. If somebody wants to have an Ariel Adams creative directed watch and all they want to do is change colors, I just, I, I decline politely. I, I'm honored, but like, that's not, I'm not, I'm not contributing anything. Okay. Me choosing the, the color. I know there's a lot of colors. I know there's a bunch, but I just don't feel that's interesting enough for me. I, it needs to go further than that. The Zodiac, for example, has an entirely new dial. I didn't do that dial before. There's was, there was differences to it. So they were, they were willing to invest into it and I was willing to invest into it in terms of uh, a lot of things and putting my time into it and you know my reputation um, and it was very successful and I really like doing that with them so I have more that 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 are coming but I mean we're in a time right now where brands they want sure things uh, they want stores to buy things from them right they just they don't want to invest money into something new they want to have there's a lot of efficiency happening right now we're not really in the era 
of the uh, you know the the experimental watch, and I don't I don't want to have the stress associated with um with a failure. And the failure wouldn't be a commercial failure, but a creative failure where I don't feel that the watch I have to put my name on is what I want it to be. Uh, because I very much feel that if I have an association with it, that is an extension of myself and my taste. And if it isn't what I want it to be or close enough that I'm happy with it, then I don't want to do it. And so I feel that a lot of the watches out there are compromises and you can tell. And they're just like, I think someone will feel I'm important if if I did a collaboration with someone. And yeah, that's that's great. And congratulations to everyone that, that does it. I'm looking for um, a shared risk where something novel can be made. Uh, I've designed a lot of things like that. So I just look for the right opportunities. I, I know that's sort of a long, boring answer, but I don't want to come out with something that would disappoint me. That would I would I would be haunted by it, truly. I really don't think it's a disappointing answer at all. I think that it needs to be said because not all collaborations are created equal. And I always say to brands, I have a couple of goals whenever I do collaborations with them, as you know, I have done in the past mostly for Fratello, but not exclusively. And that was, firstly, a collaboration should respect the brand's core values enough so that it could be part of the regular collection, but just happens to be limited. But it should also take advantage of the fact that it can be a little bit crazy and it can blame it on the collaborator. You know, there are some things that a lot of brands I know from talks with them behind the scenes, they would love to be able to do. For example, brands that have launched with rather affordable off-the-shelf calibers would love to know if their brand, which maybe has a USP based on a more artisanal element of it, let's say a dial, for example, they'd love to know if they could launch that dial with a Schwarz Etienne movement or something from Chronode or Concepto, and if they could bump the price up from two or three or four thousand to twelve thousand, and people would be interested in it at that price point. And I say, if you want to find out. Body up with a collaborator, do something a little bit wild, a little bit out there, and use it as market research. Like, see if it works. Don't make it so much the brand, because if it fails, then that's terrible. But try something with somebody else. One of the greatest things you ever did, I thought, because, and this is just to touch on one of the models that you've been creative director on, was the uh, LACO. Remember the LACO? No, you remember it. The Rad Ox Limited Edition. Yeah. The post-apocalyptic one. It still sort of lingers on the fringes of my memory as like one of the greatest sleeper hits. And you did everything. You did like the the tin as well. It looks superb. <laughs> I just met someone uh, actually that bought one and let me know about that. And I was delighted, of course, you know. And I, I'm, I'm actually looking at that watch right now. It happens to be on my shelf. I am so happy with how that thing came out. It, it That's a perfect example of something. I don't care if no one else understands it. It's exactly what I want it to be. It's a it's a freaking cool looking watch. There's nothing else out there like it at all. You have to put it on and be like, wow. It is, it is again, it doesn't bother me how many or how few people know about it. it you know, for, for, it needed a lot more storytelling to really be explained. But once you put it in your hand, everyone has just loved that thing. And um. I'm just smile thinking about how how cool yeah. it is they made it because it was um, really a good example of what you can do when a brand trusts the concept. Yeah, I mean, it's a creative triumph. It's absolutely brilliant. And it is exactly the kind of thing that people should do, should take advantage of when they're collaborating with somebody with that kind of creativity. And it makes me smile. And uh, it makes it transports me to the universe that you were inspired by, I'm sure. And um yeah. Have you got any other projects in the pipeline that we should know about? 
There are. Uh, some of them are sure things. Some of them, it's it's hard to say. I have some verbal yeses and things like that. Um, you know, it, I, I'm not trying to be like coy. I just, I don't know for sure and I don't want to make promises. But what I can say is that I personally like these projects. And when the right opportunity comes up, I will pursue it. Not every opportunity is. Um, and I take them very, very seriously. Like you said, you, you can't just take some idea and think that it's going to work well for every brand. Yes, it has to be you, the creative that came up with it. But it's hard because you have to have not just your own um, personality in it, but it's got to make sense for the brand. And a lot of stuff can make sense for brands, but some things really can't. And you have to understand the brand super, super well um, or be lucky when when doing something like that. So it's not an easy task. Um, and so, you know, when somebody uh, does a collaboration with the brand and you see the final result, you know, I, I recommend doing what you said is ask yourself, like, you know, without this collaborator, does this feel like something the brand could have made? Not should have made, but could have made. Uh, if the answer is yes, then, you know, maybe it's successful collaboration. If the answer is no, then, you know, maybe somebody um, forgot what they were doing. <laughs> right, right, yeah. And that credibility of the design, uh, and it's a great weight upon uh, external designers' shoulders, is, is the most important thing in many ways, I think. Now, behind the scenes, you and I have talked over the years extensively about the difficulties that an established media title can face when they try to step over into the e-commerce world. And I think the way that you have pursued these projects is very clearly placing the creativity of it and the genuineness of the collaboration at the center, at the core of everything you do, which still retains that honesty and that openness that you have always championed for Watch Media. Could you just talk a little bit about, because I know it's a subject you've considered many times, the difficulties you see about trying to be both? And is it easier to go from being a media house to a watchmaker or easier to go from, say, being a retailer to a media house? Because we've seen it go the other way as well. This is an industry that likes to attract people that jump from career to career, sometimes within the same industry, sometimes different industries. But some of the best watch brand CEOs, watchmakers, designers have experiences from multiple industries, sometimes doing completely different jobs. And that is something which I think is amazing and a benefit to the industry. But what you will find is that very few of these people do these roles simultaneously. So it is entirely okay if someone from watch media goes into watch retail or someone from watch retail goes into watch media. That's healthy. That's good. That's going to bring the best of both worlds. But I don't believe that you can do both of them at the same time because selling watches and specializing in watch media are two entirely different industries altogether. And when you muddle them, you get something which isn't satisfying as media and isn't satisfying as retail. It's something else and it's designed to be confusing. And I don't like deceptive things. I like clarity and I like precision. That's one of the reasons I like wristwatches. And that's not what that media is. It's not precise or clear as to what it is or what they're trying to do. So I think that we have to celebrate that there are companies that communicate about watch stories, tell you about what collectors are thinking, and give you you know, uh, an expert's perspective. And there are those companies who specialize in selling and servicing and make you feel really good about buying it and making you feel valued as a customer. And those companies that make things. And once in a while, I guess some company could be big enough to do both, but you'll notice it's not the same people from the same department doing both of those things. So I think that it's human nature to not be able to do 
so many different roles at once. So that going to your question, it was a hard, I just need to make a decision. I'm not a watch salesperson. When, when you don't know what your job is in the moment, when you have a lack of clarity, am I a watch salesperson? Am I a media person? Am I an influencer? Whatever that even means, then you don't know what you're doing. And that's a problem. If you don't know what you're doing, the audience can only guess what you're doing. And that's not good. So I, I encourage people to jump around from career to career, from job to job, do different things. But let's just be realistic. People tend to have one job at a time. Mine is weird because I'm a business owner. A lot of stuff goes into that. But it's not like I'm waking up one day and be like, whose business am I fighting for? No, I, I know where my allegiances are. This, it's completely clear. Well, that's nice, I guess. I, I'm kind of envious listening to you talk about the clarity that you have in your own life and your role and what it is that you're here to do. Because as a technically independent consultant now, I work with several brands in seven different fields. So there's the journalism. Obviously, I have the real-time show. And then there's my role with Arcanaut as the head of brand development. I do a little bit of work with Fortis and retail, product development for some other companies, and communications even for one company. Strangely enough, I just kind of volunteered for it. And it does take a great deal from my ability to focus, but at least I am not a brand in myself out there and something that people need to buy into. I can sort of have my influence in the background and then that doesn't really affect the customer's choice. They're not buying a watch because it's Rob Nudd's designed. At least I guess they're not, at least certainly not yet. But my question for you is, what do you see as the future of watch media, knowing that a blog to watch is one of the last standing members of the old guard that I think is, you know, pretty purely media and the products you have produced have been done so very transparently as an experiment of creativity on your side. And you haven't really seemed to transition to a retailer in the way that, I mean, let's just use Hadinki as the example, because obviously it's the, the most uh, prevalent in that field. What do you think is going to happen over time, I mean, I guess you now, you've made your stand. You're going to continue to stand where you are on the line. You're going to dig your heels in and be that resource that people can trust as an independent uh, media outlet. But do you think that's going to be even rarer as time progresses? Or do you think we'll see more people trying to do what you're doing in the old school purity kind of way? That's a conversation unto itself. I mean, there's a lot of different places to go here. I, I think in a lot of ways... It's actually early. The next stage of watch media is a few years off still. We're not quite there yet. I am, I wouldn't say a vestige, but I'm sort of a remaining survivor of an era where you could have business through traffic, right? You had a big website that was easy to find on search engines and things like that. You didn't have to try too hard to have to make money because you could get automated ads through um, certain, you know, Google uh, ad management platforms and things like that. Like people could bid on you. Like you wouldn't have to go into ad sales. Like you could make a, a, a website that people liked that was uh, supported through ads. And that was a reality when I started a blog to watch. And that was a real thing for a while. Social media ended that era because it took all the advertising money away from those types of places. So the websites that would receive those advertising, those advertisers were seduced by the Facebooks of the world. Um, I don't know if the Facebooks of the world ultimately offered them anything better, 
but they were seduced by sort of this new data-centric approach to selling advertising. Um, the old sort of like, you know, uh, bidding model on websites, you know, you knew you got the impressions, you were bidding to an audience, but, you know, it was realistic in terms of how much you could target. The sort of magic of targeting that Facebook allowed advertisers think they had obviously came out that it wasn't that precise and there was a lot of issues with it. But they, again, the long story short, they seduced away a lot of money. So then what you had to do in order to make money is still have the same amount of views, but they get the brands that you're writing about to actively sponsor your content unless you were going to get fans and supporters to do it, which was either asking them for donations, which was like begging, or which was selling merchandise, which which was starting to straps and watch pouches and things like that, and later turned into just being full on watch stores. So it really goes back to the problem of the economics related to not just watch media online, but all media online. And what I believe what we're moving towards is a sort of compromise between the two um, warring factions, which is the platforms and the publishers. The platforms need quality content. In the days of just them receiving you know, free content from just any schmo out there, I'm not saying it's totally over, but in my belief there's going to be a reduction of it. Platforms online, just like TV stations, are going to need shows. And, and, and that's where the content producers come in. So I think that there's going to be an alliance in the future of platforms and content producers who share in the effort. One side makes the interesting stuff and the other side makes sure it gets to people and that it's, uh, it's monetized. And they benefit from one another, almost like how there's businesses that are entirely reliant on eBay or Amazon uh, to sell their goods. Um, and so my good will be information and, and entertainment um, and quality um, content that that helps people be a collector and helps them make these difficult decisions, which are are high end watches. So I think that the future um, is is you know a blog to watch being a a brand which can be on different channels, not just a website, but you know maybe there's a, a monetization sharing with Twitter. I'm just you know coming up with it, which evolves and will come soon. Uh, that could be an answer to some of this. We're going to start to see some of this evolution uh, in the coming years. For now, what keeps uh, things going is the very real need that there is out there. Blog to Watch continues to have uh, good visibility because people need our content. They want to learn about new watches. They want to know opinions about them. They want to see hands-on reviews of them. Uh, this is all very useful information if you want to be a watch hobbyist um, to people who are all over the world. So um, we continue to produce something that people need. And the reality is one of the things that people don't need that much more of is places to buy watches. They need good ones. That's true. They do need a good amount of good places to buy watches. But it's not this ballooning need where all of a sudden the Internet needs more watch stores. So pretty soon <laughs> that is being an answer to what do we do as watch media is, is going to go away. And they're going to go back to square one where they're like, uh oh, if we want to be media, we have to make money doing something else. And maybe they'll sell T-shirts. Maybe they will. Um, let's talk for a second about the importance of sharing your opinion, because that is true. It can often be the reason why people choose between one media outlet and another, whether or not the writers have the same opinions as they have, and they'd like to exist in an echo chamber to confirm what they already believe, or whether it's just the way that those opinions are expressed. And I think that you have a nice way of expressing your opinion and something that I've always looked up to. What I'd like to know for the last few years, let's say, because you're so 
good at looking at so many brands across the spectrum, which, let's say, sub $20,000 watch brand or brands have impressed you the most and why? I don't know. I take these questions really seriously. And like every single time I mention one brand, people are like, well, why didn't you mention this one or this one or that one? So it's taught me to like never mention brands because I'll be pilloried for the ones I didn't mention. Um, I think, you know, it's not one specific brand, but a sector, which is the micro brands and how resilient they've become. I fully expected by now the cost of watches for micro brands to be higher and their ability to produce watches to be much lower. The costs have gone up and their ability to get watches have gone down, but there's also a a sort of tidal effect where the perceived size of these small watch brands is going to increase. I mean, there's going to be more of them and there's this industrial support behind them. So I am truly fascinated by all the several hundred dollar to say $2,000 watches that are, you know, popping up all the time. New brands or brands that were supposed to have like one hit wonders are suddenly making amazing things. I don't know where these are going to go. I don't think they're going to be the Burgays of tomorrow. But again, thinking about the future and collectability, if you want to have like a really cool collection 20 years from now, Spend a few grand on like micro brands over the next few years now. And I promise you'll have something way cooler than if you like stress out to buy the latest hot Rolex or Omega or something like that. You'll have a bunch of cool watches, but I don't know that it'll be as satisfying uh, because you're basically buying this sort of like artwork directly from the artist. Nobody knows it'll be popular or be perceived as cool, but you could have um, you could get lucky and you could have something really, really interesting Again, you know, looking ahead 15, 20 years where I don't know if this industry will exist anymore. My suspicion is it will this golden era will, will go away. So, again, that's that's where I continue to be impressed. That's, that's interesting. I mean, people could get lucky in more than one way as well if they put their money into that sector of the industry. Because, I mean, some of those brands may blow up to great success. And if you've got yeah. one of the early ones in time, I mean, look at Laventure. It's a brand that I talk about frequently and even did when I was writing for a blog to watch. Yeah, you love those guys. I do love those guys, and I was I was lucky enough to take a chance on the first one, 1,400 francs on Kickstarter, and now you can't get one for less than 5K. And that's just a bit crazy. That's a very strange example, of course, but one of the arguments people use against buying microbrands is always, oh, but what happens when the brand doesn't exist in five years' time? You need to get the watch serviced. It's like, well... It's got an Edda or whatever. Like, <laughs> Yeah, most of them do, right? So like in 20 years' time, like you say, if you look in your watch box, you might well have like five brands that no longer exist anymore, but the watches were cool because they were cool at the time. It's like buying a work of art from an artist that dies. Like there's not going to be any more of it, but you know, yeah. they can now refurbish it, but they can fix the movement. And, you know, to use that argument against them is like saying, well, it's like expecting Rolex to have dials, box fresh dials from 1905 on stock. Like, well, every brand eventually will run out of stock. I believe that the rule is that brands have to have or should keep 30 years worth of stock for new models that they release but um I, I know that not all brands do that obviously certainly not micros but what i'd love to know your opinion on something because there is a a massive debate raging at the moment we have often referred to on the real-time show as this era as the age of independence and i don't think that we're the only ones to call it that but it's something that's very popular as a discussion point amongst our community and we look at 
the role that the independents have played throughout the pandemic and what the burgeoning Rolex prices did to people's interest in brands off the beaten track. And I said recently that now the independent ideal is so strong, the strength in numbers that a group brand like Longines or Hamilton has always been able to lay claim to and lean on on occasion when necessary is now almost true of the independent sector. Even though these brands aren't linked to the independents, the small independents, and the micro brands, the reputational benefit now of being an independent is a plus point. In the past, it used to be, I think, a drawback and something that people would use against buying a watch. But what I'd like to know from you is how do you define those tiers? How do you define an independent? How do you define a small independent? And how, quite crucially, do you define a micro brand? I don't know that I'm going to give very satisfying distinctions between these um, categories because this is a moving target. I think the distinction I like to make are brands who are found by an enthusiast, someone who wants to make the watch for themselves that they want, someone who feels that they have an idea that just doesn't exist yet out there that feels that they want to bring something fresh and new to the table. This is what I'm looking for. Um, and I think that that is sort of the core idea. If they're just in it to make money and they're a business person and they're just sort of hiring someone that likes watches, you start to move away from the things that are valuable, at least to me as an enthusiast in this area. It's someone like me who wants to jump into that entrepreneurial ring. I mean, I do with Watch Media. Uh, they're doing it in a different category, which is, you know, making a small brand and attempting to do that. Um, you know, it's different than a brand who is started because they sort of want to be sold uh, to someone else to create sort of brand value. Like, look, look how cool our brand is versus our products. Mm. I think that these enthusiast run brands tend to actually do very bad job at branding most of the time because they're like, but the product, the product is amazing. Can't you see how amazing the product is? Like that's sort of a hallmark of these things. So again, you know, another way that sometimes I like to define them is with production numbers. Um, like regardless of the price point, um, you know, there's some brands, maybe their watches are only a few hundred dollars, but they still only make maximum a few hundred watches a year. Maybe some of these brands make a few dozen. I think that once you reach a certain threshold in the thousands of watches a year, you you really fundamentally become a different type of company than one where the proprietor themselves can still maybe personally ship out a lot of the watches. That's an interesting way of looking at it. I mean, I, I think you defined it perfectly by calling it a moving target. That's a great way to describe it. I've tried extensively over the last three or four years when this conversation became very relevant in the minds of consumers to define very cleanly what a microbrand is, what a small independent is, and then what an independent is. And there are always exceptions to the rule. And of course, as brands migrate from one category to another, you will have contradictory points of those definitions flying around all over the place. You know, I've noticed something recently because I've been working with small brands and I like to work with small brands because they're dynamic and they're receptive to advice and they, uh, they do cool stuff. They aren't bogged down by red tape. And I've seen watches from Arcanaut, with whom I work most extensively in Straum, launched in recent years to great acclaim in certain corners of the industry and great derision in others. Now, comment sections on watch media platforms are always brutal places to be. And it seems to me, in my experience, that the bigger a website becomes, the more brutal the comments become. Now, is that just something we're seeing because it's the general trend of internet comments to skew negative? 
Is it something that brands should pay too much attention to? And how do you deal with it as a media platform proprietor? You should put that on your LinkedIn. How do you deal with that in terms of maintaining a positive view of the brand of a blog to watch when, say, the comment section is particularly tough going for for some brands and some people? Again, a lot of uh, interesting topics rolled up into one there. I wish the comment section was an easier thing to deal with than it is. I wish it didn't require as much supervision. Um, Again, going back to the concept of the, the different psychologies at play, the psychology of the publisher, us, of the person making the comment, of the brand, all different, all have completely different expectations. I think for the person making the comment, for them, it's sort of uh, like the clubhouse. They want to feel like they're in a semi-private environment. It's Yeah, it's public, but it's not like everyone. There's supposed to be like other people that are into this hobby. And you should just be able to shout out something because there's other people that feel the same way you do. It's it's almost like a, less of a comment and more of like I'm shouting out into a room. And sometimes people shout back, right? And sometimes they don't. And I think the problem is that it's, you know, for the publisher, we want there to be an interesting, you know, thoughtful conversation about, you know, topics and be polite and, and useful. The brands just want to hear people have, you know, fawn and praise. Oh, that's so great. I can't wait to get one. That's their expectation. No consumer is like, I'm so excited to write about how much I want to spend money on this. Like, no one says that. People feel more comfortable when they say something snarky. It's just, again, in psychology, there's a there's a higher degree of comfort. It's safer to say something. It's safer to say no than yes. It's safer to say, I don't like that, because there's always someone that will agree with you, than to say, I do like that, because you're not sure anyone's going to agree with you. And a lot of people want people to agree with them. And that's, again, another complicated part of the psychology is people are looking for allies or people are looking for someone to agree with them. I think the fundamental thing that I know, and I have to remind myself and other people this all the time, is you can't please everyone. I mean, this is this is as powerful as like a law of physics, like this idea that like you can't make everyone in a room happy, but it's the same thing. It is as it is as predictable as gravity. It will happen every single time. So just by the laws of of psychology physics as I'm creating them now, um, if somebody somewhere really likes something, there's someone somewhere else that really hates it. Like it's sort of like this rule that there has to be this dichotomy for there to be extreme emotion in one end of love. There has to be this extreme emotion of, I don't know, hate or whatever you want to say is the opposite one or apathy or disdain on the other side. Uh, and you see this, you know, with very commercially successful watches where there are a lot of fans and there are a lot of haters. Um, there's really very few watches that have universally one or the other. There's just one camp which tends to be silent. Um, the people that hate Rolexes like to talk. The people that like Rolexes like to buy, right? Um, so it's it's sort of you know a complicated set of psychology and and things at play. I I t- I have to take stock in comments because I have to look for sentiment. I have to look for comments which are inappropriate and spam and take those things down. But I recommend that brands ignore the comments. I think brands should study how people respond to their watches in real life, um, find opportunities, whether it's a show or a store or an event, to introduce your watches to people and and carefully gauge their reactions. See what they do when they hold it, what their eyes look at, what they say. That's going to be very, very telling. Um, trying to come 
uh, to sort of um, an emotional and a logical conclusion from a comment someone sees about a watch they've never held from a brand they may know nothing about online, that's just giving that comment too much credit. So definitely listen to the comments, but make sure they're of someone who is in front of you and is actually looking at your product. Very well said. You know this uh, phenomenon of dichotomy that you speak of? You know what I call it? What's that? I call it the lobster effect. Did you say lobster? Lobster. Yeah, little lobsters. Lobster, okay. Yeah, there's a reason for this. So when I was a little kid, about eight or so, I was in a restaurant and uh, I was looking at lobsters in the tank and they were swimming around and I was staring at one of them and it was staring back at me and I thought, God, you are the ugliest thing I have ever seen in my life. Hideous. Horrendous. And then another lobster runs over and gives this lobster a hug. And they're both looking at me and I'm thinking, okay, okay, I get it, I get it. So you are only as ugly to me as I must be to you because you're looking back through the glass thinking, oh, look at his like fleshy pink face. Why is he only got like his eyes in his head? Why aren't they sticking out on stalks? And I realized like, oh, so for everything that I love, for all the reasons that I love it, there must be somebody somewhere in the world that hates that thing for exactly the same reason and loves all the things that I hate for the reasons that I despise them. And I stuck with it. And uh, yeah, I don't mess with lobsters because they're scary little buggers. I'm glad you like telling that story. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's come out once or twice. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Okay. Right. We, we've got through the bulk of what I actually like really, really wanted to hear from you. It was very fascinating. And as you always say, like we could probably spend another five or 10 episodes digging through each of these questions individually because they're massive topics and they do go off in all different directions when you allow them to. So let's just end on a sort of more personal note, a couple of questions about your collection, how you feel about being a collector, et cetera, et cetera. So I want to know, firstly, do you know how many watches you have in your collection? No, I don't think it's very healthy to count. Okay. And can you count that high anyway? Because I'm not sure I could. Yeah, we have we have machines for that. They can count very high. <laughs> All right, okay. Uh, do you ever have any desire to like consolidate your collection? Because I recently have, I, I've never had as many watches as you've had in your collection, and we don't need to put a number on it, but it's a lot. I think the most I ever topped out at was around 70 or 75, and it started to really bother me. And I'm not just talking 75 like crappy swatches. I'm talking like 75 notable, not major, major pieces. Some of them were major, but mostly just reasonable mid tier watches start to really bother me on one hand because i couldn't enjoy all these watches and i was just owning them i wasn't i wasn't feeling them in any way and when i did put them on the feeling that i once had for them had gone and so i felt like i was carrying a lot of dead stock effectively and i wanted to refresh it and i started to sell with the intention to buy more but then i decided that i actually would rather sell huge volumes of my collection and buy far fewer pieces and just dedicate a lot of time to enjoying that how do you feel about that? Does it bother you having a lot of watches or not? Well, what you've described is a very natural tendency. So I'd say that most collectors I've encountered experience this this thing where you buy watches for a number of years, you clearly like some, but not all of them. And what you want to do is you want to sort of consolidate to get more watches, a smaller number of better watches, right? That's what you want. You want to reduce the collection, uh, more watches you like. The problem is there's no easy ways of doing that, at least economically speaking, because the watches you want to get rid of tend to be the ones that aren't that popular or not that cool. And the watches you want tend to be ones that are maybe a little bit more popular and cooler. And so it's hard to take a smaller number of lower priced watches and roll that in to nicer watches. The only mechanism to do that right now is to 
sell them one at a time, or maybe get very lucky and find some dealer who's willing to do something special for you. For, For the most part, you can't do that because the watches you'd have to trade in to make a really big dent in, in a budget are you know nicer ones. So I think that it's a very common problem. I'm not sure that there's a lot of great solutions to it. I'd say that what I try to do a lot is, is, is gift downwards. So when I have watches that are not particularly valuable, I'll try to give them to someone who is maybe newer in the hobby or not a watch lover at all and would just cherish it a lot more than me. Because I think there's a lot of watches like that so I think it's completely okay to just give, give a watch to a new home. If you're not wearing it, it's a perfectly good wa- good watch. You don't think you could sell it for a lot of money. You could probably make someone really happy that would wear that watch uh, a lot more than you would. So that's something to consider for sure. And people definitely do that with family members and friends. But um, that's always something to consider. And again, if you have the desire to sort of, again, get rid of some watches that's okay. I mean, some people have ambitions. They want to keep every watch they purchase to, as a reminder of something. They're not particularly difficult to store. But again, uh, the, the average watch collector has done exactly what you're talking about, gotten rid of a lot of watches, thinned out their collection, and then tried to focus on typically sort of more popular um, or high value watches or that, that fit a particular theme they like. Some people are like, oh, I only want gold or I only like chronographs or I love tourbillons, people sometimes tend to get sort of hyper-focused. Not everyone, but that, that what, what you're describing sounds really normal. That's good. That's good. I'm glad that I'm not an outlier. But uh, it's, it's funny to observe all these phases that we go through as collectors because, I mean, I think every phase I've been through is particularly normal. And I think the more collectors you speak to, the more you realize that. It's just interesting to sort of analyze oneself as you go through these almost involuntary evolutions as a watch buyer maybe a hoarder, maybe a seller, and then maybe a coveter. What do you think were the biggest collecting mistakes you ever made? Did you ever miss out on a watch that you really regret not picking up at the time? It's hard to call the mistake because a lot of it is sort of this wisdom through, you know, looking in retrospect, you know. If only I would have known how expensive Nautiluses would have gotten, I would have got that one that I saw years ago that nobody wanted at the time, right? You can't be angry at yourself for not predicting a future trend. Um, I I have watches that become very trendy. I never sold any of them when they were, tra- you know, at those times. So I, I wouldn't say I made mistakes. Uh, I would. A lot of people regret selling things. I hear that a lot. So if you have something which is near and dear to your heart, it's probably going to be more expensive to replace it than the value you're going to get by selling it. So um, I don't know exactly how to you know transmit that knowledge but people should probably keep their watches more readily than get rid of them if all they're looking for is money if you have to if you have to do it and you got need the money okay but don't think you're going to value the money more than the watch people tend to value that watch more than the money after the fact um there's definitely a lot more watches i would have bought if i you know if i would have known uh certain things about you know where watches would have gone because then maybe I would have sold them to buy other watches, right? Like all my mistakes are really about watches that I I still want to wear. So I don't know if that's a mistake, but I think the reality is that I have a growing list like everyone should of watches I'd love to own one day. And I probably won't own most of them. But, you know, I think what's great is there's the watches I'm looking forward to coming out that I want to own. And then there's the watches that exist that I want to own. And I feel every single day, and I'm sure you and others feel feel this way, that like no matter how weird life is, 
there's a bunch of watches you can dream about owning someday, right? It's like one nice and consistent thing to think about. Yeah, definitely. And I've got some watches on my list still. And when it comes to regrets, like it's interesting, you went straight almost to the uh, financial side of things saying, oh, if I'd known this was going to blow up, then I would have bought it then and there. I can sell myself a lot of the time because all the watches that have become mega stars in recent years were way out of my price. Uh, well, way out of my budget in those days. Absolutely no chance I could have bought a Nautilus even when they were, <laughs> well, not by many stretches, but affordable in comparison to what they've become. No, I saw them real cheap. Oh, I really? saw them when they were real cheap, like uh, 10 grand cheap. Oh, uh, shit. I mean, well, okay. I'm guessing that was probably before I had even 10 grand to spend on a Nautilus. And that would have been horrendous if I'd had that opportunity and not been able to But take- all I would have done with it is sell it for money to buy more watches. So right, at the end of the right. day, it's not a financial thing. It's an opportunity thing. I just- right. I, I hunger. It's so exciting to think about wearing, owning. It's a good thing. I'm I'm glad that after, you know, nearly 16 years of doing this professionally, I still, you know, lust for the experience of owning, touching, wearing. If I didn't feel that way, if I didn't care, that would be bad news for the for the company and the audience. Yeah, definitely. It would. And I'm glad that fire still burns in your belly. And like for me, the same is is true. I'm considering selling a lot of watches that I adore. Because they no longer fill my heart with the joy of the one that I want to buy instead. And when it comes to watches that I actually missed out on, the only regret I ever had was the Laventure Transatlantique, the third one that they made. And I had the money. I could have bought it. It would have kind of put me in a bit of a awkward position when it comes to the rent, but I could have bought it. It wasn't like, oh, that would be nice if I could afford it. And so I've been lucky like over time to actually have been able to accrue the watches that I really, really love. And I hope that continues. And uh, But for me to do it, I'm going to have to start selling because my tastes are getting rather extreme. And talking of extreme tastes, uh, do you have, or is the concept even one that you find relevant, a grail watch? I mean, I have a lot of grail watches. There's a lot of timepieces that I don't want to say I fantasize about owning because that seems kind of childish, but like, I know I can't afford it. Maybe one day I will, and I think about how much I would enjoy it, how much I would enjoy wearing it, looking at it, playing with it, maybe showing it off. Uh, there's all kinds of watches like this, and I think it really depends on mood. Some of them are like very classic, you know, it's like, you know, the the, the longue style grail. Uh, sometimes it's like some crazy futuristic thing. I mean, I don't know that we need to be tied down to one. I think that just having an, a, an ongoing set. I mean, look, I'll give you an example. Um, a couple of days ago, I got um, the the proof copies of of the second edition of the world's most expensive watches book, right? So there's like, I don't know, 160 watches in there. So near that, uh, watches are $200,000 or over, right? Like those are all someone's grail. And I'm sitting there just flipping through this literal like <laughs> little tome of grails I just put together. And I'm like, this isn't doing you know, the, the, the world that he favors when it comes to like the, the, the passion, because it's just so much like you just, oh, I want this, I want this, I want this. Um, it, it's, I think it's great to sort of have these watches we dream about, the idea that we have to like hyper-focus on one or favorites or top 10 lists, just, just forget all that. It's just arbitrary. Okay. You've raised another nice little point here that we need to plug to our listeners. You wrote a book. Tell us all about it. Where can they get it? How much is it? Uh, it's $75, which is less than the first edition. I think the first one was like 90 bucks, something like that. That was in 2014. You can buy the world's most expensive watch. I think it's called the updated and expanded edition. It's just basically volume two to me. Um, um, I'm on Amazon, I'm sure, through 
uh, ACC Art Books. That's the publisher. It's the UK publisher in London. They sell them on their website. It's going to be in a bunch of languages. They've already sent me the English, the French, and the Italian one. Um, I know the original book had a bunch of different languages. So it's it's just a fun book for people who love watches, people who don't know anything about watches. Uh, the first one was really uh, successful. So this is, again, eight years after the first one came out, a bunch more watches, a new design. Um, yeah, that's I, there'll be another book I wrote coming out later this year, but that's all the thing. Oh, well, we'll have to get you back on to talk about that when it's about to hit the show. Yay, books. I like writing books. You know, Rob, I think I can do more. I was A few years ago, we talked about this. I was super intimidated. Now I, I can wrap my mind around it. Like it's not as intimidating as I thought. I right. can totally do I it. I think you should do as many as you can you can squeeze out of yourself and just wonderful thing to do. I pitch it? some weird ideas to some people. I'll tell you sometime. Weird I don't know if anyone's gonna say okay to it. Like <laughs> <laughs> Oh God. is is it gonna be some kind of like uh futuristic analysis of what will happen to the watch industry in a post-apocalyptic No, I want to get into the minds of some of the like really bigger players in the industry who are very notoriously secretive, and there's uh-huh. a lot of them, uh-huh. so that doesn't really narrow it down. But I, I, one group of people, I actually pitched to them that I would basically spend a few weeks with them and interview them and about a specific topic, not just like, let's see what it's like to hang out with them. Uh-huh. I would talk about a very specific topic and that I would discuss it with them over this, you know, several week period. Um, but like, like stuff like that, because I think that what you could get out of those types of interviews just be completely different than any information out there. And there's no other way of getting that. Yeah, well, I, I think uh, the advent of gonzo journalism in watchmaking is upon us. And I'm trying to lead the charge myself. I just oh. finished writing a book and uh, with a brand, which hopefully <laughs> you'll see in the next few weeks, few months even. Um, but I think that's a great idea. Gonzo journalism. So Gonzo journal. It's a book. It's a book written about it's an experience. Gon- so it's not just Gonzo journalism. Okay. So is this like the time you were you were you were intoxicated a few years? You may have been working for Vlog to Watch. Is that what this book is all? <laughs> not yet. That's the sequel. <laughs> that's all I was the prequel, this yeah. journalist, and I was I was because that's what Hunter S. Thompson was doing. That's what it was. It was right. Going to places on drugs, and when it was too boring to write about, you basically you made your own okay, mess. Okay, well, that's not in. Okay, that's a perfect example. Hunter S. Thompson is really the godfather of gonzo journalism, but you don't need to be on drugs for it to be gonzo. You just have to live. But you have to make a mess. You can make a mess. What you should really do is get to the truth of the matter, even if you have to lie to do so. So I think you're missing the. The major part of Hunter S. Thompson's style. <laughs> Hunter S. Thompson's like lifestyle being totally fucked up all the time, like is not integral to the concept of Gonzo. No, when he was there, when he was there, he talks about. He's very open about how yeah, I, uh, I know the books about like entirely intoxicated to while on the job list for drugs. Yeah, fine, okay. Well, if it makes you feel any better, coincidentally but not deliberately, I was a little drunk for most of this experience. Okay. Okay. I wasn't taking mescaline or like snorting cocaine or anything like that. Well, not, that's not the point. The point is to he's go. A har- he's a hard act to follow. Let's he, be honest. I'm not even going to try. But the point is to go and to live the story, to find the real truth. Whereas a journalist should really concern themselves with the facts and what they mean. A gonzo journalist concerns themselves with the fact of the matter rather than like actually what's happening. Now, I think you would be brilliant at that to go and live basically in the shadow of like some great watch luminary that hides from the world and then just tell it how it is i've got a book for idea for you i think you're u- uniquely prepared to do this okay 
So it's a combination of a book about survival and watchmaking. Okay. Yeah. So what you do is you live the life for one year of a Swiss watchmaker as they would have lived at the turn of the 20th century, <laughs> right? So like 1910 <laughs> or something like that, when it was the absolute bottom of the industry. And that's where the, the like, a lot of negative connotations about their professionalism came in, right? This is before they cleaned up their act. This is where America was eating their lunch. So you have to make watches as they did circa 1910 in Switzerland. Right. So I basically- They write about it. All right. So I have to live like in a in a farmhouse on the side of an Alp. Yeah. You may or may not have electricity. There's going to be a whole won't. lot of schnapps for you. Right. Okay. It sounds like it could be the end of me, but I might take it on- just uh, just for your amusement. This could be literary gold. Awards everywhere. All right, I'll bear it in mind. You I... won a GPHG award. You wouldn't even know for what. As what? Win a GPHG for what? Being, what, dying for my craft? They'll, they'll come out with a new category. They love doing that. Okay, all right, fine. If you're you're on the panel, right, you got it. You can vote for me. I Great. don't really focus on I mean, it's so arbitrary with them. I like <laughs> awards that mean something to consumers. <laughs> yeah. The popularity contest. It's like if you made if you made it's like if you made dating decisions based upon how someone's portrayed in their high school yearbook. It's a ter- it's a terrible judge of character. I guess that's where I've been going wrong. Anyway, just to round up this point about Ariel's book, uh, the world's most expensive watches. If you're on the continent of Europe like I am, you can buy it from a place called Hugendubel. H u g e n d u b e l. d e. So that's the German website. This is actually the English version. 400 pages. You could, you could be making a joke right now and I would have no idea. No, I'm not. I'm actually, I've did my research. <laughs> 454 <laughs> illustrations in full color. So if you're interested in that, go ahead and buy That's it. That's right. So, it's color, everyone. Wow. What a, full what a, color. What a, what a thing. So 67. Not that like 12 color cents. thing. You ever see no. those like old color books? Like, yes, There's not I enough did. colors here. Yeah. Yeah. There's something missing. Yeah. But this one is full color. It's printed on real paper and it's written by a real watch journalist. Okay. Let's. Let's wrap it up there, mate. That was a lovely hour or so of chat, and I can't wait to get you back on either another edition of The Real Time Show or talk to you again on one of your podcasts in the future. Thank you for joining us. Rob, thank you so much. Guys, if you'd like to ask us any questions about this interview or any interviews in the upcoming future, then please contact me on Instagram, either at Rob Nudds, that's R-O-B-N-U-D-D-S. You can contact my regular co-host at Alon Ben Joseph, that's A-L-O-N-B-E-N-J-O-S-E-P-H. You can contact us via email, either rob at therealtime.show or alon at therealtime.show. And finally, if you'd like to use the contact form on our website, you can visit us there at www.therealtime.show. Until next time, stay safe and keep on ticking.